This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with best-selling author, entrepreneur, and workplace expert, Dan Shawbell. Now in his early 30s, Dan has made it his mission in life to support the work lives of people in his age group. He's a well-known expert on the millennial generation, and he has a savvy way of talking to young professionals and offering them practical advice for building careers. Today we're going to focus on Dan's new book, Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. Dan is a social media expert, but he understands that the dominance of technology is contributing to an epidemic of loneliness in the American workplace. In Back to Human, he talks about how young professionals and particularly the next generation of leaders can build important human relationships. He says his goal with this book is to bring some sanity back to the workplace. Dan, your career got off to a really fast start, even before you graduated college in 2006. And, and now it seems like you've got several careers going. You're a branding and workforce expert and consultant. You're an entrepreneur. You're a speaker, a writer, and a popular TV personality. And, and you're the best-selling author of three books. And in a few minutes, we want to talk about your latest book, Back to Human. But, but before that, can, can you tell us how did you launch your career so early? And and how did you become an expert so quickly? Beverly, that's a great question. Everyone sees outcomes and they don't see the journey to get the outcomes. They see the outputs, not the inputs. I think I think the smartest and best advice I could ever give anyone is do as much as you can as early in life as possible because you figure out not just about what you like but what you don't like so you can avoid those type of jobs, roles, and projects. So when I was 13, I had my first job. I was a caterer at my temple. And I think service jobs are extremely valuable for learning how to deal with people, which is the number one skill in business and in your personal life. If you don't know how to deal with people, you cannot be successful because anything that is not people-oriented will eventually be automated out of society. So I can't stress enough that service level jobs, sadly, a lot of them are being eliminated now, are vital because of that core skill. Dealing with difficult situations, you know, like for me, when it was in catering, it's like, you know, I'm doing these bar mitzvahs, I'm doing Shabbat dinners, I'm doing um, weddings, and people are not always going to be happy. They're going to complain, and you have to learn what to do when those situations arise, and it's so vital. And then I had my first internship senior year of high school, which was extremely tough but awesome at the same time i i was i did cold calling i called over a thousand companies in one summer trying to sell them phone auditing whatever that is right and that didn't work out very well and you could and the environment was pretty toxic it was just me cold calling as an introvert hating it around all these customer services customer service people who were always stressed out and smoking cigarettes so very toxic environment but 
that internship was key because through that internship, it enabled me, I think it helped me get my job uh, or get my uh, future internships and get into college. I think, you know, half of high school students now have at least one internship. So things are much different now because we have access to people, tools, and opportunities earlier in life. And people, when, when they're younger, have so much access. If you're born right now, you will never know a phone that can't take pictures. So how early from these early experiences, and, and I agree with you, it's important to do all kinds of things so you know what you don't like as well as what you do like. But how early did you start to see a picture in your head of the kind of career you wanted to build? During college, I had seven more internships. I, I had uh, eight leadership positions on campus. I was uh, one of the founding people at the Bentley Entrepreneurship Society. Bentley University is where I went to school. And so I started to figure out this whole, you know, being a, the importance of being a leader then. Uh, but I also mastered this art of self-marketing, which later I, I was calling personal branding because I would go into all these internships and I'd have a business card, I'd have my own website, I'd have a CD portfolio of work to prove that I can actually do what I'm, I'm saying I can do. And through all of that, I kept getting internships. And while I, I didn't know that it was personal branding and didn't have that term in my head, naturally, when I, when I read Tom Peters' Brain Called You article when I was a recent graduate, it was the ultimate validation for me. Everything that Tom Peters wrote in The Brand Called You, which was the cover of Fast Company back in 1997, it was exactly how I thought of the world and how I, I knew that all professionals would have to build a personal brand and be the chief marketing officer for their own career. And so that, that, that article validated me in such a way that I came home from an eight-hour training session at EMC Corporation, my first job out of school, and... I was like, there's got to be something else for me in life. I started Googling. I found that article. And immediately, I saw the rest of my life flashing before my eyes. I knew that I could become this you know, young millennial voice talking about personal branding and, and how to leverage social media to build your career. And then it was just an enormous amount of work uh, of writing 12 blog posts every week on top of the full-time job, I started my own magazine called Personal Branding Magazine. I was managing over 100 contributors and two editors. I literally published the magazine, distributed the magazine, got all the sponsors, managed all the contributions, and designed the magazine. So I gave myself my own MBA after school. That's, that's how I view it now looking back. And from there, I just kept on, you know, between that and then I launched an online video show I was just kept doing and doing and doing and then you know once Fast Company profiled me for all the work I was doing around personal branding EMC's PR got wind of it and sent it to a vice president who recruited me to be the first social media person ever at EMC which is now EMC Dell so I was really early into the social media game and all the people but I, I recognized one really important thing back then was all this blogging all this content producing the most important thing is that it creates the conversation and the network around you. And I always put the network first. My intent was to create all this content in order to form the network and get visibility for what I was doing. And it paid off. So a lot of these people that I connected with over 10 years ago are have some of the biggest podcasts, have TV shows, or are extremely successful now because I put the network first. And I still do to this very day. I've interviewed over 2,000 people. Um, so it's always been about 
content creates the relationships. And then even when someone commented on my blog, I saw that as an extra investment in what I was doing. So they ended up becoming the sponsors of the magazine. I made all those connections really early on. And over time, to answer your question, over time, I have retooled and retailored my skills. I've identified that back in the day, I thought you need to be the best at something for a specific audience. Now I realize that I wasn't that. I was known for the for personal branding, but the reason why I had a competitive advantage is because I'm good at several skills when combined give me that advantage. I'm good at research, I'm good at promotion, I'm good at, you know, all these things, but com- but separate, they're not I'm not the best at each individual one. Combined, it's very rare to find someone with a, a, a good conglomerate of all those skills. There's something um, implicit in, in what you described as, as your process. I want to just shine a light on for a minute because I think it's really important. As you describe, when you were in college and going through your internships, you were building your brand even though you didn't know precisely where you wanted to go with it. I, I hear people say sometimes, you know, first I, they don't like branding, but then how, how can I know my brand when I don't know what I want to do? And it, it sounds like what you did was you, you were building skills and connections, and that's what you were shining a light on. That was your brand, even though you couldn't have foreseen your path. Is that right? Yeah, and back in college, the advice I was given, and most college students are given, is you know just go to these networking events, pass out business cards, hope that people are interested in hiring you for internships or jobs, and you know you're basically a taker at that point. You just need something from someone else. What I realized with blogging, blogging was the best education I ever got. It's the reason why I became an entrepreneur is because I recognized that I could give value in the form of blog posts. And I could just be helpful to people as a source, whether they're in the media or they wanted to kind of do business with me, before I asked for anything in return. And that was the key in building my network. How do I help people out when I don't need something so that if I ever need something, there's a chance that they would want to reciprocate? So that philosophy has become the under, under, underlying current for my career. And the other thing, too, that's really important is I've always evolved. And it's always been, during times of transition, there's a lot of fear, but I overcome that fear because I've been doing this for over 10 years, so I know that it's really important for me to do that. For instance, I didn't recognize that uh, what I was actually doing up until my second book came out. Right, the first book, Me 2.0, was the first book on how do you use social media to build your career. But really, it was, you know, how do you get your first job when you graduate school? And then my second book was, okay, now you have your job. How do you advance in that job and eventually become a manager? And then once I wrote those two, I'm like, oh my god, I am. What I'm actually doing is I'm helping my whole generation through their whole career path from student to CEO. And so then the third book, it was more intentional. Back to Human, the new book is a leadership book which focuses on the biggest obstacle that people my age face, which is the overuse, of, overuse and misuse of technology, which has isolated us and made us lonely and unhappy. So, so I, I, it took me a while to, I, to really carve out my mission statement, which is at the top of my website, and to really get a firm grasp on what, what the possibilities are. And then I had to take, you know, you know, from contributing to all these business media outlets and everything I've done to now adapting to podcasting and Instagram and other 
other venues to distribute information. So I've not only had to evolve, I had to recognize what I was actually doing and then put my stamp on what I was doing and say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. You know, in 50 years, I'm still going to be doing this. And that to me is exciting. I see Ken Blanchard, who, who I'm sure you know, the one man manager. He sold millions of books. He doesn't need to speak at the Association of Talent and Development annual conference every year for free for, to, to a few hundred people. That, to me, he's 79 years old. It's incredibly inspiring. And I started when I was like 22. So I see I'm a, I have a, at least another 50 years doing this. And then, and then I'm extremely curious and excited for what will happen in 40, 50, 60 years of doing this. Well, I love your joy and excitement. And I totally agree with you. This kind of work is absolutely worth doing for the sheer fun and excitement of it. But I, I want to go back again to the beginning a little bit before we get into the, the new book, um, because I think this is also important. What you figured out, a key thing that takes some people a really long time to learn is that networking is about thinking, not what can they do for me, but how can I help? And I, I, I think it sometimes, even if you theoretically get that idea, when you're you're starting out because you're 20 years old, or you're starting out because you're in a new field, you think, I can't help. They, th- I, there's nothing I can do for them. Can you give some examples of how how you can help other people, through whether it's through social media, or how, how was it you were able to connect with people by giving them a little something and not just asking for a little something when you were starting out? Yeah, in the early days, it, I interviewed people you've never heard of before, you know, some authors, some professors, just some business owners. And the key was that I put light and shed light on what they were doing. It wasn't just about me. And I recognized this really early on. And everyone wants to be recognized. Everyone wants to tell their story. They want to, they want people to notice them. And everyone, you know, it's weird to say this, but everyone has their own ego, whether it's a big ego or small ego, everyone has that internally, whether they try and avoid it or not, it's, it's there. And so, and so you, in a way, like I knew, I knew that I knew that from a psychological standpoint, because that's something that I would want. You know, it's like when I, you know, interview people, I want to make sure that interview goes live when their book comes out or their project comes out, because that's what I would want. That, that's how I always think. I'm extremely thoughtful when it comes to feedback and what I do for others because, you know, especially with some of the more successful people, they don't need to get interviewed. They don't need some of this other stuff. So you got to figure out what their needs are. And so now compared to, so obviously I still interview people now, but it's different now because now it's like, oh my God, I can be a bridge for people. My network's so big that, you know, what would take someone years to figure out, I can explain to them through experience. And if they need it, if, you know, I'll, I'll give you a great, you'll love this. Uh, what I do now is if I meet with a really successful person during that call or meeting, I'll say, who are the two top most people you would dream to meet? And then by the end of the meeting or five minutes after the meeting, they'll have those introductions. And it's awesome because most people will say, oh, I'll help you. Or yeah, you know, like down the road, maybe we can do something and nothing ever happens. So, and I know people want instant gratification and I can stand out by just delivering immediate value, the highest value possible quickly. How, how can you respond so quickly? Because I am, I lean into my own anxiety because 
if you email me, you get an email immediately because I'm an anxious person. And so knowing that about me, it's the reason why I'm able to do this. So even though, you know, it's not always good to, you know, have high anxiety for health reasons, for what I'm looking to accomplish, it actually helps me because it forces that out of me. It makes me do that. And I'm very quick because I'm very also thoughtful and I'm like, man, I could really, I get ex- pumped about it. I get really excited. And so that's, that's what I've been doing. And, and it's actually worked really well. It's like the easiest way to form the strongest relationship with people because no one does it. I do it. And it makes a massive impact on other people. But I, I do it psycholo- in my head. I'm like, well, I know this. I know this introduction will benefit both parties. I'll never do an introduction if one party benefits more than the other. I can't. Say, I can't do it because I know it's not a good move. So I'm always thinking about the win-win, and it, to a point where in the email I will literally describe how both be- both parties can benefit. So I do all that work for them. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University is having an impact today while providing innovative education for tomorrow's leaders. The master's program in public administration and environmental studies leads students to greatness in nonprofit, environmental, public sector, and government settings. Learn to lead at the Voinovich School. We're now accepting applications. Information is available at ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. One reason I think your techniques are so successful is something that I have come to notice as a coach. And I, I coach all kinds of people, often leaders in complex organizations, but really all kinds of people. And I've come to believe that everyone, no matter how successful, no matter how outgoing and popular, everyone is a little bit lonely some of the time. And some people are terrifically lonely, even though it may not show. And that's one of the ways that by um, having compassion in dealing even with highly popular, successful people, you can forge a connection. And I think that's one reason I love your um, your book, Back to Human. I, I think from the beginning, although you were doing social media and content and, and technology and um, becoming an expert in all of those things, you um, the, your processes were based on uh, being back to human, acting out of anxiety and connecting with people. Is, is that a fair statement? One of the other things I've realized that you've just touched on is that it, it, one way to look at my three books is it helps you get each one helps you get to the next phase of your career, following you through your whole career trajectory. The other way, the way that you just brought up, which most people might not, it might not click for everyone, is that it's almost like every book makes it is more human than the last. So the first book was very focused on technology for obvious reasons. It's called Me 2.0, right? It, it, it took it. It comes from the Web 2.0 movement in the early days. The second book had 
40 pages in it on soft skills because in the research study they did with American Express, we found that managers prioritize soft skills over hard skills when promoting. And now this one clearly is saying we're, we've gone too far. The pendulum has swung in the other direction and we have to use technology properly. And what you just noticed too is in the early days, I used technology to build this big network, but over the past you know, six to eight years, it's all been how do I use these relationships in a way in which is meaningful and meeting these people actually in person. So for the book, which is really cool, is I interviewed a hundred of the top young leaders of the best companies in the world, Johnson and Johnson, Uber, Instagram, you name it. And what I did was I had a Facebook group to connect all of them, right? That's but I've used the Facebook group in order to do meetups in person all over the country. And they've been going on book tour with me. Oh, so wonderful. I'll speak at an event and then I'll ma- moderate a panel with two, three or four of them. So I'm trying to use the book as an example of how to go back to human. Well, tell us the, the central thesis of the book, Back to Human. Technology has created the illusion of that we're all connected, yet in, yet in reality... We are more lonely, isolated, less committed to our teams and organizations over the overuse or misuse of that technology. People tap their phones over 2,600 times a day. They look at their phone every 15 minutes. You know, we are constantly using technology, especially email over face-to-face. The research study I did with Virgin Pulse for the book of over 2,000 managers and employees, what we found is email is the biggest culprit. You know, it's it's the biggest crutch in the workplace for leaders and teams. Um, and, you know, it's created a very lonely work environment. The other thing that's really big in terms of the research is we found that people who work remote are much less likely to want a long-term career at their company. This is really big. I've worked from home for for eight years. and this, And while everyone in society talks about the benefits of the freedom and flexibility and the lower commuting costs, no one talks about the dark side of loneliness. And so that's one of the big things that I want to push out through this book is, hey, you know, a, a third of people globally work remote, but two thirds are disengaged. And it's not like I'm not saying, hey, let's remove remote work. People like it. It's very popular. People need some flexibility. But let's be conscious of uh, how we're managing these remote workers. You know, the amount of attention we give them. Are we having offsites? Are we having parties? Are we using video conferencing so we can at least see them? So I think I think that's a really important message to get out is, hey, people want this, but they don't know what they're actually getting themselves into until they've been doing it for a long time and, and they realize that they've been disconnected, they're lonely, and it's caused unhappiness. And then, you know, they probably won't stay with your organization as long. It's the reality. And then the other thing is, almost 10% of workers globally have zero friends at work. And half of all workers have five or fewer. And the importance of this is we're working more hours than ever before, right? The average work week by Gallup is uh, 47 hours a week for a full-time salaried employee, 43 hours a week for a part-time hourly employee. And so, uh, you know, because we're addicted to our phones, because if I stand in front of an audience and say, how many of you, you know, you know, send and receive emails on vacation, 99.9% of people say they do, not having your phone is the new vacation. We always feel like we have to respond. We want the instant gratification. Technology has created this illusion that we have a 
a ton of friends, you know, Facebook friends, but someone with an average of 150 Facebook friends only really has three or four real friends. And the real definition of a friend is not a Facebook friend. A Facebook friend is an acquaintance. Uh, a real friend is somebody who would be with you or text you at least in case, you know, during an emergency. That's a real friend. Absolutely. And I think you, uh, you're known as an expert on the millennial generation, and your writing tends to focus on, on lessons and opportunities for millennials. When you're looking at a situation which affects, I think, the whole American workplace, but to me it certainly feels like um, it, there is a, an, an age gap, a generational gap uh, between uh, some of the older workers and the younger workers, and the younger workers are really um, captive to the technologies they've learned. Are you talking particularly to them? And do you see a difference between, say, the older millennials and the people who are getting out of college right today who've sort of grown up with their phones? There's a big difference between generation and human life cycle. Something I've been talking about a lot of conferences now. The younger you are, the more likely you are to switch jobs, right? Uh, it's not just a generational thing. Everyone goes through a human life cycle of, you know, when you're older, retirement benefits are more important than they are as a recent college graduate, right? If you're younger and you're having children, like people who are, you know, older millennials slash Gen X, they're having kids now, so they need, you know, more flexibility in terms of schedules and telecommuting. So it's based on personal need. It's also based on human life cycle. Um, the one thing that is, is similar for all generations actually is pay. Everyone chooses pay over everything else. Um, I don't think that'll ever change, too. Uh, but that's important. And I think that leadership styles have changed. So the older leadership style that boomer ha boomers have is autocratic. It's about command and control, you know, making people follow policies and procedures, where younger people are uh, transformational leaders. So they're about, you know, encouraging the best in others, teamwork and collaboration, you know, shared vision. That's becoming much more important because people want to know, you know, why their company does what it does. They want to have meaningful work, things that play into their strengths and, and shared values with their company. Uh, and if they don't have that, if they don't have those connections, if they don't have the human relationships with their teammates and their leader, they're gone, right? Because the, the way millennials look at their manager is their work parent and their coworkers as their work family. And so if that, that, uh, those relationships are really tight and strong, they're less likely to leave that company even for another five to $10,000 more if they switched. Uh, so I think that's really important is how do we foster work culture where people feel included, they feel safe to share ideas, and their leaders, like the ones I discussed in the book and interview for the book, are really establishing strong relationships. And the best way to establish a good relationship with another person is to not just talk about work, but personal hobbies, personal life, right? That, that's, how you, that's how you go above and beyond the, the surface level relationship. And that's what people are looking for. They want to bring their full human to the workplace. Because, you know, and just in talking with like Richard Branson, you know, 
there's no difference between work and life. Everything is so blended now. So you should have the same amount of friends at work as you do at home. You should have the same flexibility both ways. So the the nine to five workday, all of that, those structures that you know were created by society many years ago, those are all being shattered. And so it's up to the company to recognize that and give some flexibility, but also promote leaders that want to establish deeper relationships that that uh, are very authentic and giving, but also for an individual who's looking to to build a career to be accountable and to recognize that they have to seek out those managers or become one of those managers, that they have to really be thoughtful about the type of work they want to do and who they want to work for and what company they they think is going to reflect those values that they have if you want to be successful and happy and fulfilled in your life. So part of what you're saying, I think, is that if leaders regardless of their age or situation, if leaders want to create the kind of culture which will fight back the trend of isolation and create a really productive um, and and happy workplace, the the first thing they can do is um, walk the talk and connect person to person with their people. But um, are there other tips? If, If you're talking to leaders today and you're learning from the leaders who um, you've interviewed. Are there some other tips that you can give, just practical suggestions on how people can start shifting their workplace culture? Yeah, I think it needs to happen from the top down. So a good example I give in the book is the current and former CEO of Microsoft, so Steve Ballmer, the former CEO of Microsoft, he would go around the office and tell people they're wrong and call people out and yell at them. And that is the old autocratic leadership style where, you know, if they're not doing it the right way you and in, you in, intend to do it or want to do it, you know, you get yelled at. That's wrong. You get punished. Whereas Sadia Nadella, the new CEO... He's very empathetic. He'll ask more questions. You know, how, why do you see it like this? Uh, how do you see that happening? You might want to think of this. So words are really powerful, and how you communicate and your attitude is is really significant to inspiring versus you know making people feel bad. And uh, I think that in today's world, you need to lead with empathy. I have, chapter nine is about leading with empathy. I think that's the chapter in the book that is the most important one. It was the hardest to write. Uh, because you see all of these things happening, like executives getting fired because of sexual harassment and all this really, really tough things going on in the workplace. Workplace is very toxic. People are getting paid the same amount they did years ago, but you know are working longer hours, so they're getting burned out, which is the cause of almost half of all attrition. A study I did with Kronos uh, a few years ago. And so very toxic atmosphere, a lot of bad things happening. You see about every day, you know, executives getting laid off because there's a big, uh, you know, there's a lot of transparency in the world now. You can't get away with as much as you could 40 years ago. I mean, you know, just look at the former CEO of uh, Fox News, Roger Ailes and various other Weinstein. Like they've been doing, they had done all that stuff for years, but they got, got called out now because the world has changed and, you know, you want to be very authentic and, and understand people's situations uh, and what they're going through before you act. You know, if someone comes into work one day and, you know, a parent died or they don't feel well or, you know, all these things happen, uh, just 
being understanding. You know, I remember there was this one girl I cited in the book. She she told her manager, hey, can I take a mental health day? And the manager responded, yeah, of course, I totally understand. And it went viral. Everyone, you know, everyone saw that because everyone feels that. Everyone needs a little bit of a time off. They need a break because people are working so hard and there's so much chaos going around around us. And, you know, a lot of people suffer from mental illness as well or just anxiety. And so I think you need to be the leader that is very empathetic and understanding and then, you know, not only forgiving, but, you know, you're willing to take a step back and say, hey, this is a person here. It's not just, you know, somebody who's doing a job. So I'm guessing that um, in your podcast, that's one place that uh, people can hear some of your conversations with young leaders who really get it and who understand compassion and empathy and have some suggestions about, about how people can lead in that way. Is that right? Your podcast is a good place to listen to some folks? So, so the podcast is me interviewing you know, Richard Branson, Condoleezza Rice, uh, Dr. Drew, uh, and other really successful, famous people to get their impressions of this. Mm-hmm. The book and the community around the book, I call it the M100 or Millennial 100. Those are the top young leaders uh-huh. that I interviewed. And so their, their stories are throughout the whole book. They're in my keynote presentation, and they'll be in a lot of materials uh, around the book and promotional campaign because they're the stars of the book. Okay, right? they're, terrific. They're, yeah, they're, it's like a, it's like a movie. If the book's a movie, these are these are all the players in the movie. Some are, you know, quoted more than others, but they they really bring the material to life because, you know, I'm I'm so focused on research that I also need you know views, the human and touch, to exactly to bring that out. <laughs> yes, well, I did read back to human. I enjoyed it. I think it's um, an important and useful and enjoyable book, um, even for people who are not millennials. You're talking about something that's really important. Do I uh, really appreciate your insights. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners today on, on getting back to human? Yeah, I have a whole challenge for people. It's like, do one, what one thing you can you do this year to make you more human? You know, think about you know, and be more self-aware of how and where and why you're using certain technology. And think about how much time you can save and the relationships you could develop that are more meaningful by having more phone calls and in-person communications. Use technology as a path and a bridge to human connection, not an obstacle. Terrific. Thank you, Dan, for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Today we've been talking with best-selling author, entrepreneur, and workplace expert Dan Schaubel about his important new career book, Back to Human. Today's career tip is that while social media are important, networking with actual human beings is vital to your career. If you want to be a leader, it's never too early to develop the skill of creating meaningful connections on the job and in every part of your life. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Thank you.